Hey, Whiskey Ringers, more updates coming your way. First off, the Jack Daniels barrels are totally sold out. These went in about a week, week and a half at most. If you haven't received your bottle stickers, please reach out to me with your address and how many you got, and I'll be happy to get those to you as soon as possible. Next up, our current single barrel, the Podcaster Yak Attack. A barrel rye finished in Armagnac casks, picked in partnership with This Is My Bourbon Podcast, is live and available on my site. You can go to stores.mashnetworks.co, that's .co, slash W-I-M-W-R. That's W-I-M-W-R for Whiskey In My Wedding Ring. Patrons get first access to this one too, and got free shipping alongside it. The next barrel pick that's scheduled is a toasted oat whiskey from Spirits of French Lick, which should be available in about February, and will also go through the same store. I also have a few picks rolling around right now that might pop up in the next few months. Best way to get first access, first knowledge of these things, special benefits, and codes for these bottles is to become a patron at www.patreon.com slash whiskey in my wedding ring. You can support for as little as a dollar a month with tiers at $5, 15 and 25 The 15 and $25 tiers also come with the opportunity to not only get samples from me, but the $25 tier lets you join me for barrel picks, whether they're in person or virtual. And with a lot of barrel picks hopefully coming down the line, this is the best time to sign up. There are just a few spots left at those top tiers, so if you're interested, don't miss out. Sign up now. Finally, I am thrilled to welcome Black Button Distilling out of Rochester, New York, as my newest sponsor. They've just opened a beautiful new facility, and I got to visit, tour around, and do an on-site episode that'll come out later this month. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for supporting. Sign up on Patreon and rate and review wherever you can. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, we are taking a slight break from the liquid itself, and we're talking more about the barrel. Now, if you remember back uh, two and a half years ago, we had Kelvin Cooperidge on to talk then. I'd like to think a hell of a lot more to talk about now. So I'm thrilled to bring on John Cox of Quercus Cooperidge up in New York. So we're sticking with the New York theme as well. So John, welcome on. Oh, hi guys. Thanks for having me. So, uh, hi everybody. Yeah, of course. So, uh, you know, one of the reasons we got connected, we have a mutual friend, uh, who invited me to an event that you're going to be holding. And uh, I want to start off with that event. Uh, I'm not going to be able to make it just cause I'm going to be out of town for that week, mm-hmm. but, um, this event is going to be at Kings County in November. So I want to throw it to you to promote that event for, uh, yeah, I'm coming back to Brooklyn. Uh, we had a shop for a long time uh, in downtown Brooklyn near BAM. And uh, we're going to come down to Kings County Distillery. I do an hour and a half uh, lecture and presentation. Uh, half of it is barrel lore and history from Caesar to today. And the other half is my process of making barrels using hand and mid-20th century you know, furniture machines. Uh, And I present that and I've been doing more of it and I'm teaming up uh, with our mutual friend and Leah and uh, to uh, do my presentation. And then she'll be uh, doing uh, some of her work uh, with the tastings of some of Kings County's products. Awesome. And that's going to be on November 10th, I believe, right? Right. Friday, I think seven o'clock, Kings County. They have a great place down the Brooklyn Navy Yard, not too far from where we used to have our shop. And uh, yeah, if you get a chance, 
Uh, you can find out more information on my Instagram page, or I'm sure a link through uh, through your stuff. Yep. I'm looking forward to working with her, and we're going to try to do some more shows together. Awesome. Yeah, we'll have a link in the show notes. I'll put out a reminder. Uh, like I said, I'm going to be in California, but I'll put a reminder for people to hop over to Kings County. They're also friends of the podcast. Our mutual friend, Leah, also a friend of the podcast. She runs Barrel Strength Talent. Yeah, yeah, um, she's great. And uh, yeah, yeah, and it's a lot of fun. Um, I tell a funny, humorous uh, story, the history of uh, man's use of the barrel and how important it was to our ancestors, not just for food and liquid, but for commerce, exploration, warfare, colonization, uh, its links to slavery, and uh, every post-colonial industry from tobacco, cotton, whaling, oil, all relied heavily on it. And maybe we'll get into some of that later today. But uh, the barrel is more than just uh, to age whiskey in. Our ancestors uh, would not have survived or even traveled. The, there would be no Vikings, uh, at least nautical Vikings, without barrels of water and food to keep them alive on the boat. And so it's very important to our history. But uh, because of the Industrial Revolution and corrugated cardboard and the shipping container, prohibition all these things put a death knell to what was once a very flourishing and uh i believe in 1900 there was 91 million people and there were about 91 million barrels in america at the time so our wow. ancestors were uh you know really uh, it was a really integral part of their life so to jump back yeah yeah sorry okay. no 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 we're good uh we're definitely gonna go into that um i just want to start with you know, how did you come into Cooperage? Oh, yeah, sure. So um, I'm from Philadelphia. You'll notice how I say water and what it is. And uh, so I'm from uh, South Philly. And uh, I started, I was going to Temple studying jazz, uh, Temple Music School, college. And I met a flamenco guitar maker. Uh, he introduced me to the world of luthier and woodworking. And I started off when I was a teen working in his shop. And eventually, uh, and for the next 32 years, um, worked for different studio furniture and cabinet makers uh, doing fabrication and finishing. Uh, we've worked for many famous fa artists. Uh, we had a 13-man cabinet shop in downtown Brooklyn throughout the 90s up until 9-11. Uh, uh, after 9-11, I decided to uh, move to upstate New York. And we were still doing interiors, and somebody told me that there was a barrel crisis. This was 2014. Where were you in the barrel crisis of 2014? Um, and I was very intrigued, and I really wanted to get out of the chemicals and a lot of the uh, our interior work. You know, there's a lot of lacquer and chemical spraying. And I became very intrigued. I saw an article in Time Magazine. Remember that? Time Magazine. Yes. And uh, about the barrel shortage. And mostly what it was is the craft distilling uh, movement was really taking off. And, uh, you know, they needed barrels and um, they just weren't ready for uh, the onslaught of the Washington distilleries and New York distilleries. So when I got in, um, it was uh, there was almost a two year wait, which I think we're back to now. But uh, there was a big backlog. And I'm here in the Hudson Valley. That's an hour and a half north of New York City. For those of you uh, who aren't familiar, and was sort of the breadbasket of New York City. We're right up the Hudson River. And uh, there's a lot of distilleries, including mostly uh, Tuttletown, uh, Hudson uh, Whiskey. And... Um, 
so it was really in the air up here and I was very intrigued to start coopering. And then I started a process, uh, which I can talk to you about, about trying to figure it out because it is a mysterious um, practice. I don't know, it was very hard to find any information on. That's probably some of your listeners might know. It does seem, I mean, even, even now uh, with talking to so many people who are in whiskey and in spirits and, it does seem somewhat magical in a way you're using only wood um, and it, you have to make it, of course, watertight. Right. Wood, six, six hoops and 12 rivets. Exactly. Yeah. No, usually no other, you know, metals or glues or adhesives, sealants. No glues, no um, yeah. nails, no uh, fasteners. Um that we do have some secret things we're allowed to use but uh yeah so that's what it is right it's um it's about 32 pieces of wood uh six hoops 12 rivets and you're off to the races um and as opposed to practically every other field or product there is tons of information i'm sure if i wanted to make a an airplane i could find the specs online but there was nothing online which intrigued me even more so it was 2015. Uh, we had a cabinet shop here. Um, so, you know, we're making things, we're running machines, we're milling, uh, making custom work. I bought a few barrels, uh, one from Barrel Mill, one from Black Swan, I have Barrel 59, I can't remember all of them. And I took them apart and tried to figure out how they were made. And uh, why all the staves were different sizes and how many they used and how they cut the angle. And I was investigating all that when I had a breakthrough and I bought a large collection of 18th and 19th century hand tools, coopering tools, which are very unique. We'll talk about that in a minute. From a museum in Ottawa that was deassessing their collection. And they had quite a collection. They had, you know, almost every tool. You know, it was almost like they had all the hand tools from a cooperage up there. And um, so having taken them apart and then seeing the tools and seeing how they made these and seeing, you know, the tools showed me uh, what we call knives. You know, if I was going to make you a, a custom crown molding uh, for your uh, restoring your 19th century home, we would get knives made for our shapers and then we would mill the wood and we would have that profile. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, you know, how can I um, adjust the machinery? I had to do that. And I approached the stave as, you know, a custom project. I was also uh, very clear not to try to reinvent anything. I let these tools tell the story. I could see the knife. And instead of having a large hand plane, I could put it onto my shaper. A shaper is like a large router uh, that's spinning with a, a knife head in it. And um so um, I broke the whole system down into five systems, um, trying to figure out each one. And the hand tools really helped me. I spent a few days with Russ at Black Swan at the time. I guess this was about 10 years ago, who also came at it from a cabinet making background. And he was very helpful in telling me what I didn't need and what I where the bottlenecks were going to be. Uh, it took me about two years. We finally held water on like the winter solstice, I think, of uh, 2016. And that was quite a day. So, yeah, um, I used the tools and the reverse engineering uh, to teach me um, 
I bought a machine to roll the hoops. That was one of the machines I purchased from Slovenia. Uh, if you see some of these larger automated cooperages, a lot of their machinery comes from Eastern Europe or Slovenia, uh, these custom coopering tools from these companies. And uh, that was one thing I bought, but I didn't try to CNC anything and I didn't try to uh, use really any modern technology other than mid 20th century, you know, furniture making machinery, what we call like stationary machinery, large machinery. And, um, and we were able to figure it out. Uh, in the meantime, I was buying local New York wood and aging it um, and then sourcing the steel. So, yeah, that's how uh, I approached it. And I had a lot of interest from everybody around here who wanted uh, local wood, local terroir. Uh, because I'm small, I'm able to sort of harvest my own wood, or at least I did. I now do get some stuff from Stave Mills. And we can talk about that and the trickiness of all that. So, yeah, that's my story. I transitioned from uh, custom fabrication and interiors to being a cooper. And really uh, dove deep. And uh, my lecture and um, the things I talk about, the historical stuff, are all things that I discovered along the way as I unraveled this onion. It was very interesting. And what was interesting was the lexography, all the words we get in our language from barrel making and the surrounding uh, jobs around it. And also uh, how integral it was to almost every post-industrial industry. Uh, the ability to hold pelts, uh, the ability to ship nails, the ability to, you know, move glass or move flour or cement. And, you know, we didn't have sheet goods. We didn't have cardboard. We didn't have, uh, you know, uh, thick bags. Um, even though there was paper uh, bags, obviously, but they're not going to really hold up or be waterproof. So it was quite a conundrum and the barrel filled all those gaps. And the minute they could get away from the barrel, which is very hard to you know, make and use, uh, they did. Uh, and by that, I mean a steel drum or a shipping container or corrugated cardboard. And uh, you can tell I really have it out for the corrugated cardboard people. Um, so, uh, in fact, uh, we're talking about Kings County there, right in New York and Brooklyn in uh, the Dumbo uh, neighborhood of Brooklyn. If you've ever seen Dumbo, it's a, a few large brick buildings between the Manhattan and Brooklyn Bridge. And that was actually the Robert Gare uh, cardboard uh, factory. It was a patrician company. Uh, they had about nine to 11 buildings and they didn't invent cardboard, but they propagated it uh, through the Industrial Revolution. And uh, all those buildings there in Dumbo. And it, so, the first one, the first question I thought of was, yeah. in reverse engineering um, yeah. the, the barrels. You're, I mean, you are obviously coming from a background where you have dealt with, uh, you know, furniture making, fabrication. Mm -hmm. So you can tell how systems go together. But the way you described it was very what i would call uh, engineer like you're breaking it down into systems and then how do those systems right back into each so other? yeah my systems were like uh you know the wood procurement and the aging um i don't know if most of the listeners know but um so here I'll, let's talk about the five systems or uh, that i broke yeah. it down to and the first one was wood procurement and aging uh 
It's Cordesan White Oak. Uh, White Oak is, is known as Quercus Alba. That's where the name of my company comes from. Uh, Cordesan White Oak. And uh, most mills are anybody who's familiar with seeing somebody mill a log. It's a gentleman with a uh, large chainsaw and he's cutting large slabs. Uh, that's flat sawn wood. Uh, coopers can't use that. We need quarter sawn, which means the log is actually cut into quarters. So that adds a challenge right there. Um, and that wood needs to be aged for at least two years. I think at Kelvin, they speed it up a little bit and everybody has their tricks, um, but it needs to be aged. If I was going to build you a dining table or a kitchen, I would call my lumberyard and they would send me a kiln dried wood. That means that wood has gone into a kiln and the interior structure of the wood is sort of crystallized in the heat and it's not going to warp and bend. So a cooper and boat builders can't use that wood uh, because you can't bend it. So the wood needs to be air dried and I can get into the nerdy details of that if you wanted, but uh, you know, a lot of distillers think we're doing it just to release the tannins and season it for them. But honestly, what we're really doing is trying to lower the moisture content so we can bend it. Uh, if you will, the wood is a, imagine a piece of wood as a bundle of straws. And that straws are held together with a gelatinous material. And that gelatinous material is called lignin. And that's why a tree sways in the wind. That's why if you take a branch of a tree and try to break it, it doesn't break, it bends. And that's because the, the cell structure is all linked together with this lignin. When that wood's put in the kiln, the lignin is crystallized, making the wood very stable and hard, while also lowering the moisture content. Um, I have to let the moisture content drop, I being the cooper, without the lignin being crystallized. Uh, so that's really why we're aging the wood. It is not seasoning for the distiller. Even though that is a byproduct of the process, it is not why we are doing it. If we had made um, barrels out of that fresh wood, uh, it would be completely astringent because it would be very tan and rich. It would be like making tea with 10 tea bags. So it is important for our end user for us to lower the tannins. Um, so there's two things happening, right? The moisture content's going down, the lignin isn't hardening, and we're lowering the tannin content of the wood. So that was the first system. Uh, the second one was making the staves and being able to bend them into the shape. So that involved how we figured out the angle, um, the barrel stave, and you can see it behind you is thick in the middle and tapers on both ends symmetrically. Uh, it's wider in the middle. Um, I can get into why that is with you uh, if you want. And uh, yeah, go for it. Sure. So um, I make barrels and tanks. Um, a barrel is going to have that quintessential shape. Uh, a barrel shape where it's bilged in the middle and it gets smaller on both ends, right? We can all picture what that is, obviously. Um, and then there's tanks. Um, and you've seen some of the fermenting tanks that people have and where it's just straight, the sides are straight, there's no bilge. Um, if you can imagine an American football, and if you unstitch that football, you'd have four pieces of leather, almost like a wide diamond. Can you picture that? As you stitch those four wide diamonds together, uh, you get this football shape, which has a bilge in the middle. And in fact, if you cut the ends off of football, you'd really have a barrel shape. It's just taken out there to the end. 
If those four pieces of leather were rectangles and we stitched them together, we would have a tube or a can or a tank. So because the barrel stave has a bilge in the middle, it, we create a polygon, a shape that has a bilge in the middle. And if those staves did not have that bilge, we would be creating a tank or a silo or a water tower on a New York City rooftop or a small fermenting tank. And uh, so that's, uh, that's what coopers do. They use staves and steel to hold liquid in, and it can either have a bilge in the middle or not. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. So I had to figure out how to not only put the angle on the side of the stave, but also how to have the bilge and then how to bend the barrel together. Um, before we go any further, I should explain kind of what coopering is. Do you mind? We'll, we'll pause okay. at stage two and we'll talk about coopering. And coopering is the art of, it's one of the ancient arts of creating a polygon. I'll use the term polygon. I mean a shape. Uh, using a polygon, creating angles cut on both sides. That might sound very confusing to everybody, but you actually have this all over your home with a picture frame. A picture frame is four pieces of wood cut at 45 degree angles that go together. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if they weren't 45, if they were 42 degrees or 48 degrees, that frame wouldn't go together. And we get that number from a very rudimentary mathematical formula. If you can imagine a circle with a square in the circle. So the circle represents 360 degrees, okay? Mm -hmm. If I take the number four, because that's how many sides my square has, and I divide that into 360, I get 90 degrees, right? And if I take that 90 and I divide by two, because there's, there's two ends on each piece of wood, I get the number 45. So if I want to create a four-sided polygon inside of a circle, I need to cut 45-degree angles. Does that make sense? Yep. If I want to make a six-sided polygon inside of that circle, it's 30 degrees, and so on and so forth. So if a barrel has 32 staves, I'm dividing 32 and the 360 divided by 2. So the same way we make a picture frame is the same way a barrel goes together. Right. So that's the basis of Cooper joinery. And that's why I'm called a Cooper, because I use Cooper joinery. With the ancient arts, you were named after what you did. The millers milled, the sawyers sawn, the bakers baked, and the Coopers used Coopered joinery. This is different joinery from building a house or building furniture. And it's sort of similar, but it's different from building a boat. So our ancestors relied on Coopers for a lot of their needs, and it was a very important trade uh, throughout history. Most towns would have two or three cooperages. Um, that was usually on the road called Cooper Road. If you have a Cooper Road in your town, it's probably near Sawmill Road, because the Coopers aren't that far from the mill. And if you know anyone named Cooper, that's what their ancestors did. Uh, in German, uh, Germany, the barrel is Foss. So anyone named Fossbender, uh, that's what their ancestors did in French. And I always butcher it in French. Uh, Tonaleri uh, is a, uh, a surname used for people who made barrels. And almost every language, Japan and Eastern Europe, Russia, has names for those who make the barrels. Okay, so that was my stage two, learning how to 
Cooper would, learning how to cut, defining the angle, and bending into a barrel-like shape. The third process involved the toasting and the charring, which is going to be very important to my clients, uh, and how to toast and char the barrel properly. The fifth was the procurement and bending of the hoops, and not just the, the hoops that you see on your barrel, but what we call our working hoops, which are the clamps we use during the process of our barrel making. And the fifth step was making the heads and installing that into the cask. And that includes cutting the chime and crows. If any of your listeners have ever taken a barrel apart, on the ends of the staves are a series of cuts. One looks like a scoop. The other looks like a groove. Uh, the top has a straight cut. And that's called the chime and crows. Um, that used to be almost a singular profession for a while, crowsers who would do that process. And that's really where you're going to get your leaks in your barrel if your head isn't the proper size and not fitting in the crows properly. If you have a water balloon and you poke a hole in that water balloon, all the water will come out. And if that same hole <laughs> is in a barrel, all that whiskey will come out. And boy, do they get mad when that happens. So those are the five processes I had to figure out. I had to figure them out separately and I had to have them all intact before I could put them together. I couldn't bend the wood until I had the hoops and I couldn't really make the hoops until I knew the shape of my barrel. Uh, we couldn't make the heads until I figured out the crows. We couldn't do any of that until the wood was aged. So when I got those five things together, I could then move forward and actually produce a barrel. I started making firkins, which are traditional British ale barrels. They're about nine gallons. And then I went to 30s, and I stayed at 30s. Um, there was a lot of young distilleries around me who liked the 30 because they get their stuff out quicker. And the wood for 53s is much more expensive and longer. So I set up all my jigs and my production to solely make 30-gallon barrels. And uh, that's what we did. And I started making barrels for companies like Stout Ridge uh, Distillery uh, here in New York. Um, places like Hollerhorn and some other ones I uh, used in my barrels early on. And then because of my background in fabrication and repair, I started doing repair work. I could make a head for a punch-in. Uh, we could fix leaks. And I became more of a full-service cooperage, not just a barrel factory making 153-gallon barrels a day. And that's sort of the lane I've cut for myself. And I also make tanks, which we can talk about. So I'm sort of uh, filling in all the gaps around the mass-produced barrels. When you were looking at these, uh, I think you said five barrels. So you originally got mm -hmm. from places like Black Swan. Yeah. And you took them back. Were there significant differences between those five barrels? Uh-huh. Yeah, there was different num well, the well, let's see. Um, so we took the rings off, and each of them had different rings, you know, the different the steel, uh, but they all had what's called a cant or an angle to them. Uh, so that was very interesting. I realized that the barrel hoop wasn't just a circle, uh, but it uh, we call it a cant. Uh, if you can imagine a conical section. Uh, you know, a tapered ring. So uh, I immediately noticed that. Uh, when taking the heads apart, uh, yes, the staves are different thicknesses, the crows were different, and they all had different uh, widths. So I wrote down and numbered each stave, 
and what their size was. And then I could see it was like a cipher. I could see, oh, well, they have five different size staves and they have this many of this number and that many of that number. And uh, so I started figuring that out. And when I met Russ at Black Swan, he filled in some of the gaps on why that was and how to uh, arrange that um, to get the circumferences I need. Again, I talked about these working hoops. So I start with these hoops, they're almost like clamps. So my wood has to fit into those clamps in a specific manner. If that, am I making sense with all this? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So let's see, we went through the, the hoops um, being different, oh, the yeah. being different. Yeah. I mean, with, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm trying to, I'm delving more into the, uh, like the mindset of someone who's looking at this new challenge. Oh yeah. Right. Trying to figure out how the barrel, how to construct a barrel. You've got right. five examples that in some ways are very similar, but also have distinct differences between them. Um, how do you, how did you. Well, one of the things it taught me. Yeah. One of the things it taught me was like, okay, well I can, these chimes and crozes are different. And I knew a lot of them were being made on these large machines, which I did not have. And I knew I had to do it by hand and not automated. So I guess that showed me a freedom. Like, okay, I'm going to make my chime and crows the way I want to make it. It's kind of similar to this one. That doesn't really look like that one. Um, so it gave me the liberty to know that, oh, every chime and crows doesn't have to look the same, you know. And, um, but, um, you know, some of the barrels, some barrels have much more of a bilge than others. Some are almost like uh, tank-like. So I, I decided not to put a huge bilge on it because that means more pressure to bend the barrel. Uh, and I also, you know, had to find where I could get the steel and the rivets. And we do that all by hand. There's a lot of hammering. I don't have a hoop driver. Uh, we do it all by hand. So, you know, I made some concessions or to do it so I could... Um, fabricate them with my rudimentary machinery and my hands rather than relying on automated machinery. So, um, yeah, and I was really happy. The one uh, nice thing we got was a laser engraver so I could put people's logos in the barrel heads. Uh, that was the only modern technology because all the distilleries like to see their logo on it. And um, can't argue against that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, because it becomes decor in these distilleries also. So, yeah, that was the mindset, you know, and it was also about thicknesses, you know, how thick are their staves? You get to a point where it's too thin and it'll break or it's too thick and you can't bend it. Um, so, you know, figuring all that out and and then going backwards and figuring out how I want my staves milled as they're air drying, you know, what length, uh, what thickness, what width. So, yeah, so everything kind of changed all the other systems you know we were it relies on one thing and then we got to change it because of the other and uh i don't know if that makes sense but uh but eventually i figured out how i wanted to make my barrel um which was in relation to how my ancestors did it but also in relation to my machinery that i had and just to give a little more um, context as well so there are you alluded to before there are not a lot of cooperages and no very few uh, coopers right yes i'm one of the last yeah so when i got in there was 33 cooperages some closed during the pandemic um i believe there's only three other like me who are doing it by hand um 
like most woodworking industries, it's become automated. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see that across the board in woodworking and, and a lot of other trades, but that's just my trade. So that's what I uh, look at. So yes, it's become automated. And unfortunately, in this capitalistic society, which I am part of and enjoy, uh, there's also people who want to, I have competitors who want to stop me <laughs> or at least uh, put hurdles in my way to make it harder for me. And um, But because I stayed fleet and small and because I'm building washbacks and doing repair and stuff, I've, I've kind of found my lane, uh, which hopefully is non-threatening. Um, yes, yeah, so there's not many Coopers, and even though, and even the ones they are, and I'm sure they're all wonderful men, but you know, when it gets automated like that, you're just sort of teaching people how to operate a specific machinery. Um, you know, that machine could be making padlocks or plastic, or you know, so the people who work in those factories aren't getting a full rounded apprenticeship in barrel making. They're just really learning how to operate the machinery that they stand at. So yes, I'm a very rarefied uh, air here, <laughs> holding on to this um, trade and and keeping it going. Yeah. And as you uh, also alluded to, there's such a history with barrel making. Um, I won't have you tell the whole thing, just because obviously we want for the people going to the event to to know more. But oh, yeah. between, let's say. I mean, through the history of of the barrel, so from the Celts of two thousand years ago to yeah. today, what about what parts of that history, whether it be events or changes in technology or anything, mm-hmm. what seems to draw your attention most when you're looking at the history of barrels? Um. You know, just as important and just its import in uh, warfare, um, exploration, uh, early American industries. Uh, Yeah, it just fascinated me. You know, it's the birth of the Sicilian mob. It's, you know, it's um, all this ancient history uh, in, um, in the Middle Ages. It's Nelson Rockefeller and uh, Standard Oil and the whaling industry and uh, and the lengths that our ancestors went through, like Napoleon and the Secretary of the Navy to procure oak forests, um, and just the lengths that they went through um, for this commodity and the commodities that it held. I mean, without a barrel, you're not going to get a whole lot of gunpowder uh, to the front or keep it dry on a boat so now we don't have gunpowder and we don't have potable water and we're trying to cross the atlantic there's only only so many animal bladders you can fill with water for a you know transatlantic trip on a you know retired uh, uh you know commercial uh you know an old merchant vessel which the mayflower was decommissioned merchant vessel so, uh, you know, just those two things right there would have never happened without um, that. And then you see the tobacco industry and the cotton industry, and chattel slavery and uh, the whiskey rebellion and all these things. And if you take the barrel out of that story, there is there's no story. Um, they're not going to boil blubber on board of a whaler <laughs> and put it anywhere. What are you going to do with hot whale oil? 
you know, you need somewhere to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Oil starts bubbling out of the ground in Titusville, Pennsylvania. What, Pa, what are we going to do with all this oil? Uh, There's no plastic containers. Uh, There's no steel drums. There's a few old whiskey barrels. So uh, I found all that so fascinating. And then the tanks to hold that oil, you know, and, uh, and I talk about this a lot in the lecture, and I have a lot of uh, photographs, and even, um, you know, how to irrigate, how to move water, how our ancestors moved water, not only under the city streets, but, uh, you know, across mountaintops to explore into the West. And just, you know, every every time you unpeel a layer, uh, it's just fascinating, you know, uh, warfare relies on men and alcohol. Caesar needed wine for the, his Rome centurions. Uh the French needed wine in World War II. Uh, you know, even Americans are drinking Bud Light in Afghanistan. You know, all throughout history, we have uh, soldiers needing alcohol. So, you know, how are you going to bring wine across Europe? Uh, how are you going? To... So without that, I mean, without warfare and alcohol, I mean, it sounds silly, but uh, but it was just very important for so many aspects uh, of our ancestors' lives, especially because, and I think we forget about this a lot, Almost all the exploration, commerce, and everything that happened in the, um, let's say, from the 16th to 20th century relied heavily on nautical, uh, you know, commerce and trade and uh, being able to keep those uh, sailors uh, fed and drank and to move their commerce. It all relied heavily on that and getting that on and off of ships. You know, now it's sort of uh, blind to us because we just see trucks and trains and and cars but our ancestors really relied heavily on nautical uh i can't think of the word i'm going to find but uh you know um boats sure it it's there's two books that i have on my uh kind of wish list right now that i have to to get to at some point and i'm about a year behind on my reading list but one of them or both of them i should say are about the history of oak in particular as it relates to the history of human race and to our development. And yeah. it hits on, as far as I can tell, I haven't read it, but it, as far as I can tell, it hits on a lot of these points that you're making about history, food, commerce, warfare, storage, movement of goods. I mean, it's Colonization. so- The industry build that up, yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, and even, you know, and the acorn, uh, you can go off into the acorn too, and the food that that provides to the forest floor, to the animals uh, that rely mm-hmm. on that, and then that whole uh, circle of life um, of forest animals, and how if you take the acorn out of that, um, you're going to remove a lot of species who rely on that. Absolutely. Yeah. And so- I do want to um, bring up a topic that you mentioned earlier, which was the idea of a barrel shortage. Right. Uh, now, as you said, in, in 2014, 15, 16, when you're starting up and you're thinking about this idea, yes, craft whiskey was just booming out of nowhere. It seemed mm-hmm. everyone was caught off guard. The Coopers, the Millers, the farmers, everyone was caught off guard. Yeah. Um, and yeah. because of that, there was definitely a dearth of, of barrels. Now, to me, at least, it seems as though the shortage of barrels themselves has somewhat stabilized. There's still a waiting period, to be sure, but there are enough, there are either enough barrels, but there's certainly enough wood. 
Um, and I've kind of been, I've been talking about this with a friend of mine who also does another podcast and um, at least closer to where he is. So he's, he's in Western Kentucky. So he's closer to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Ozark wood and, and Missouri and all of that. Yeah. And of course all the Cooperage and at the distilleries in Kentucky. Yeah. So for him, his perspective was that it's not so much that we have a lack of barrels or even of wood. It's that we have a lack of loggers. It's not enough people who are going into logging as a profession. Mm, yeah. you know, that was the excuse that we heard in 2015, which I guess, you know, they, they said there was raining and they couldn't get to the logs and, but it does seem like there's something else maybe going on. You know, this shortage, which is there's a huge shortage right now in 53s. And mm-hmm. it seems different than the first shortage of 2014. The 2014, to me, I mean, and you know this industry better, but this was my observation. that in 2014, um, they just had to really scale up to meet demand. Um, and then they did that. But now the demand is almost global. You know, used to hear like, oh, Heaven Hill filled their million barrels. And now they want to fill like a million barrels a year, you know, Mm -hmm. and China wants barrels and India wants barrels. It's almost like, um, I don't know if you can solve this one by just scaling up. Um, The the demand has gotten so great that um, uh, what we're producing is at such a higher level where before it was because, you know, New York had all of a sudden 25 and then 50 and then a hundred craft distillers. But I mean, how many barrels are they really using? But now um, the big guys seem like they're producing a million barrels a year. Uh, so it just seems like the demand is, um, is growing. And those guys do seem to be controlling the forests and uh, the stuff, but um it's hard because I do feel pressure. I have been shut out of some of my stave mills by some of the global conglomerates. And, um, you know, there's these stories and, you know, I can't say that they're true, but many, many people have told me, you know, but the big cooperages would buy a small cooperage and then just put all the machines outside or put them in a warehouse and not let them get out into the market where people like me can get their hands on them. So, you know, somewhere there's a warehouse with three different cooperages machinery in there, you know. So that bothers me <laughs> that I, I can't get some of this machinery that nobody wants, you know. Um, these guys are automated. Kelvin doesn't looking for a hoop driver from the 1940s. Sure. They have a digital robot who pushes it down, you know. So it does, I do feel like some of the bigger people I hope don't listen to this, <laughs> are, are going out of their way to make sure that other people like me can't uh, survive or propagate. Um, and, you know, I've been locked out of steel mills, uh, still uh, stave mills where I get my staves uh, because international conglomerates have bought them and um, they don't want to sell it to me. So um, that's kind of more reason why I'm one of the last, you know, because <laughs> it gets very hard. And if I wanted to grow, I would probably, which I don't, but I would probably face even more of an uphill battle. That leads into another one of my questions, which was, you know, it, it was going to be, what's your current capacity and where do you want to get to? But since you sound like you, you're at where you want to be, um, what is your current capacity for 
Well, it changes. Like, uh, some weeks we're just doing tanks. Um, I I usually do about eight a week, but um, I don't really. We've been doing a lot of recouping lately, and actually sending those overseas. And I can talk a little bit about that. I've been doing a lot of recouping, but my capacity is not very large. We'll get an order for large tanks, um, and we have. I just have a few distillers that I take care of. Um, but even the landscape here in Hudson Valley is changing. So I just try to change with it. It was hard when the pandemic hit because all my distillers stopped distilling. They started making hand sanitizer and none of them would barrel age it. As opposed, <laughs> which I begged for. No. And, uh, you know, so for about a year and a half, uh, most of my guys weren't even uh, producing. Um, we pivoted into the culinary world and I, I shrunk my open top fermenters down uh, to cater to uh, some of the culinary trends that were going on around shoyu and koji. Um, and I found my the needs for uh, coopering uh, was very strong there, especially during the pandemic. Um, but now my distillers are back and uh, uh, we are producing, uh, but we're also doing a lot of recouping. I, I don't think uh, I'm one of probably the only person uh, shop in America, maybe right now that's doing a, a recouping the way we're doing it. And, um, and those barrels can be sent overseas because they don't have the same federal regulations that um, coopers and distillers have here. I, I mean, and I should, we should mention this, right? I'm sure most in your audience know this, but the, the thing about coopering and why there's a shortage is because that the American distiller is federally mandated to use, and it says new charred oak barrel. So whether you're Maker's Mark or your Joey Mom and Pop Distillery in New Jersey, you can only use your barrel once. So this creates shortages when a lot of distilleries open up, and it creates a glut of barrels in the secondary market. Um, I don't know if you've talked about this on your show, but the Scottish have been buying a lot of distilleries. Um, they bought Tuttletown here in New York, which was a kind of big thing, and others. And now that they have those distilleries, they can send um, those secondary barrels back to Scotland. And in Scotland, they're federally mandated to use used barrels. The Scotsman can't take my new barrel and call it Scotch whiskey. So, and this pertains to six of the nine whiskeys that are produced in America. Uh, six of those nine whiskeys say in their standard ingredients or, or standardizations that it must be aged in a new charred oak barrel. Um, so this is why the shortages happened. And um, this is why there's people jockeying for these secondary use barrels. Uh, India, China, Japan, uh, they don't have these regulations that we do, so maybe these secondary barrels can be, you know, used in other markets. This month's Impact Spotlight is on Nicknean. Founded by Annabelle Thomas, Nicknean has a pioneering approach to spirit making, putting innovation and sustainability at the forefront. Through Nicknean, Annabelle seeks to change the way the world thinks about whiskey from Scotland, and to create a whiskey which could exist in harmony with our planet and its inhabitants. Nicknean has created a spirit with exceptional body and sweetness, showcasing their smooth and elegant house style. This is achieved through a combination of sourcing high-quality organic Scottish barley, gentle fermentation, and distillation processes, 
and maturation in a combination of three carefully selected cask types. X American Whiskey Casks, STR, shaved, toasted, and recharred casks that held red wine, and a small amount of Oloroso Sherry Casks. The result is flavors of lemon sherbet, juicy stone fruits, and spiced rye bread. This whiskey is set to disrupt the industry through Nickneen's commitment to sustainability and creative approach to distilling. With an uncompromising focus, the small team of eco-conscious drinks fanatics also dedicate 10% of their spirit production to trialing different yeasts not commonly found in whiskey distilling, all on their journey to seek out and find new flavors in their whiskey making. If you're a longtime listener, you know how interested I am in whiskeys and distilleries like this, and how excited I am that Impex is now bringing it stateside. Annabelle will be visiting Chicago for Whiskey and Barrel Night on October 25th, and will be hosting special masterclasses featuring the key components of Nicknean, along with their core organic single malts. These tastings will also include a sneak peek of Quiet Rebels Gordon. Only 630 bottles of the special one-time-only release will be coming to the States, so it's a release and an event you won't want to miss. Nicknean Organic Single Malt is currently on its way to specialty retailers across the U.S. For more information and questions on where to buy, please contact the Impex Beverages office at office at impexbev.com and follow on social media to never miss a release. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. It's actually uh, preempted another one of my questions because I was wondering why the, uh, the, the, what's the word I'm looking for? I was wondering uh, why there were the apparatus for Koji fermentation and um, shoyu making. And we've talked about Koji on the podcast in the, in the past uh, in association oh, really? with Japanese whiskey. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah I make yeah. Uh, so uh, when the pandemic, but I started making, um, I was asked to start making Koji trays and then I developed my own Muro cabinet, which is a Koji inoculator with a heater, humidifier and regulator uh, it comes with mm-hmm. two trays and we send them all over the world. And in 48 hours, you get really good Koji. Yeah, and I got involved with some of the people writing the books, like a Koji Alchemy. And my friends who just wrote Fermenter and a lot of people in the Koji movement. Uh, there was a vacuum at the time for somebody to be making uh, the wooden accessories that go with Koji. And in Japan, that would have been made traditionally by the Coopers. Um, and so I'm just following, continuing the tradition of cooperage uh, into culinary. Um, this might be a good time to talk about um, the different types of coopers. Um, America has three different types of coopers. There are tight or wet coopers like myself, and that means you hold liquid, uh, be it potable water or beer or alcohol. There are slack cooperages, and uh, a slack barrel is, you've seen it in your supermarket where they hold the coffee beans or maybe in the produce aisle. It's a very thin barrel, almost like a shingle that might have a wire bands around it or a wooden strap. These were usually paper lined and used to send everything from cement uh, to flour, uh, to tobacco, to nails, and any dry goods that were put in slack barrels, apples, lemons, fruits, grains. Uh, the slack barrel was a huge industry, uh, even more so than the, the tight cooperage. The third cooper was known as a white cooper, and every town had a white cooper, and he is the one who made your domestic culinary items, from a bucket to a churn, 
and all types of utensils. Uh, nowadays, we call utensils forks and knives, uh, but our ancestors called anything in the kitchen really a utensil. So if you needed a spoon or a bowl or a bucket or a churn or a vessel, uh, you would go to your local white cooper for that. So uh, making the koji implements and these small open top fermenters uh, goes hand in hand with uh, Japanese coopers and their work with culinary. Um, who, yeah, you guys are talking about koji for, for sake? Uh, for sake, but also for, um, for shochu. Mm -hmm, yeah. uh, Takamine whiskey uses koji fermentation. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, and there's also an awamori as well. But there's also, and I'm still trying to find more evidence of this, but some of the whiskey produced in uh, in Canada at Alberta uh -huh. is koji fermented. Oh. It's not a lot of it, but some of the products like um, Hochstatter's rye um, and then the age stated lock, stock and barrel releases. So the 13, the 18 and the 21 year old are all koji fermented. Um, wow. Oddly enough, the blend is not, but the rest of them are. I do hear uh, you have to be careful because it can contaminate your facility. Yes, it can. And everything can be koji uh, fermented. Yeah, so uh, we did that, and uh, I, I we, we sell a lot of uh, koji trays, and uh, we make all custom sizes and custom cabinets for different people. And with the... Oh, so... Okay, so... Um, slightly different question but uh it, it does have to do with whiskey but it's not specific to it which is for example um it seems like every year or two from the whiskey side we see a trend having to do with a barrel so most recently toasted barrels became a thing you know using a toasted barrel with either no char or relatively low char like a char level one uh -huh. um, as a secondary finishing or for additional finishing or, um, you know, some like Michters who toast all their barrels, but right. toasted barrel finishes became a trend for a while. Um, more so in recuperating in Scotland using STR casks. So shave toasted and recharred casks, mm -hmm. things like that. When, when we as a consumer see a product that has, let's just go with the toasted barrel finish for, you know, argument's sake, when we as a consumer see that final product, it's not just there. Like that's aged for a certain time in a toasted barrel. It's then, then you had to have the time before that where the toasted barrel was formed and created um, back to the idea. So as a Cooper from your side of things and from your perspective within that progression, if there's a trend in in the industry having to do with barrels at what point do you see that trend coming hmm, oh, that's a good question i mean it, it seems like it happens more so in the larger scale uh distilleries and uh not so much in the smaller ones there's a little bit of a misdirect there because all barrels are toasted uh, we have to toast them uh, when they come out the set that lignin we talked about so every barrel gets toasted and then it goes to get charred. And I and I, I feel confident that almost every uh, cooperage toasts before charring. But I mean, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, no, I think yeah, most do. But it it gets to kind of a level of 
you know, do you, how long do you toast for? And then. Right. Also- and what we're doing when we're toasting too, is and I like to compare it to a, uh, um, a marshmallow. All right. So mm-hmm. we put a marshmallow over a fire and that first pass gets a golden yellow. Uh, that's the sugar in the marshmallow getting toasted. Um, and that's what we're doing with the wood. Those, Bundles of straws I talked about are filled with cellulose and hemicellulose, which are sugars. So when we toast that barrel, I'm not just setting the lignin, I'm toasting the sugar. Um, If we take that marshmallow and pass it back over the fire and get that black outer layer, that's the char. Uh, But underneath that char is still the toasted marshmallow and, uh, and sort of the same with the barrel. So I think what they're doing with just the toasted barrel is probably getting a lot more sugar uh, flavors or sweetness rather than uh, just the constant char uh, which releases some of the sweetness but i don't think all of it as strong as you do you get with the toast yeah the toasted definitely gets um, i'm thinking of the mixtures just because i have uh the toasted barrel rye from them from this year and uh, from toasted oak i always get that marshmallowy note that can right so that's caramel sugar, sugar. Yeah, which can get lost under the char, even though it's there. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, the theory is that this they, this started, you know, even maybe in France with cognac and toasting the barrels to, to pull some of the sugars out of the wood. Um, but we see that the toasting was used a lot longer uh, before the charring came into play. So the toasting was a very common thing. I know my beer guys don't want me to char. I just keep a toast on it. Uh, we've been making some small beer photos, and I've been toasting those uh, just to get some of those sugars to come to the, the forefront, but not give them the color change or the char taste. If for for products like that, where you're you're just toasting, or let's say even not toasting, but where you're not uh, charring the inside, do you have to treat the inside a certain way so you still don't get kind of no no and a wine barrel a wine barrel is only toasted a sherry cask is only toasted uh there's many uh, casks out there that only have a toast yeah so have you uh, with the distillers that you're working with have you had much opportunity to work with these kinds of different Uh, we do uh, something some people um i i will sometimes toast with pete even though I know it's, they do other stuff in Scotland, they don't really necessarily toast with the peat. Um, and we had somebody who was adding a THC to their batter, or, or uh, we, were, we were using hemp to toast with, because I don't know, it's not THC, whatever, it's the inactive ingredient, you know, they were adding. Right. Um, and um, I've made some cherry wood casks where I toasted with the cherry. You know, one thing that my clients tell me separates me from others is that I don't use propane. So, you know, we've all seen those great images online of the barrels at Jack Daniels and they go into this room and it looks like, you know, they open the the gates of hell and the tongues right. of fire come through it. And what that really is just a lot of propane. So, yeah. and even though we grill with propane at home, if I, and so I just use wood cutoffs. I use my oak to toast and char with. And, you know, if I, toast that marshmallow using a propane torch and I toast that marshmallow over campfire, that campfire marshmallow is going to taste better. So, and there's been some studies about, you know, what's left on the inside after the charring process and the chemicals there. So I don't use propane. And I think that adds a different flavor profile to my barrel because I only use oak. 
that goes back to, I, th- I think it goes back to what you were saying originally about moving from wanting to move from furniture and uh, fabrication into the barrels. You wanted to get away from the chemical aspect of it and using these things. And I agree the, those images of the flames just shooting out of the, through the barrel. I mean, yeah, it's attractive. It catches the eye. It's certainly impressive. Yeah. Um, but I, I do wonder sometimes what is then being introduced into the wood because you're lighting a, you know, a, a, a molecule on fire to, and then pushing it through that is not native to the wood itself. Whereas with you, you're lighting wood shavings and cuttings and um, I think using air, right. To, to vortex it through. Right. So I create, everybody's like, how do you burn the wood? But you never really burning the wood when, when you see those videos where it looks like Sauron, you know, is that trying right. uh, that flame is shooting up into the barrel, but the barrel never really ignites. I always tell people, I just have the barrel very close to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once I, so I create a cyclone of flame inside the barrel and I get that up to like 1300 degrees. And then when I shut the air off and I stop the, you know, I allow air to rush in uh, that the fire immediately goes out because the barrel isn't necessarily on fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We just have it. I just have it fire trapped into it. So, um, Oh, I'm sorry. What was your question though? That, um, Oh, the chemicals. Yeah. I remember reading something in American spirit and I don't want to start talking about science that I don't know, but, and the word carcinogenic gets thrown around, but there is some sort of residue that they found on the interior of the barrel. Uh, that wasn't the most pleasant, uh, you know, but I guess, it, you know, then you, you introduce uh high rated alcohol on top of that. So uh, maybe that negates it. But um, I mean, we grill with propane. I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, propane's evil. You know, I'll go grill you up a great burger out back and we use propane. So I mean, sure. I do it because I'm a cooperage and I have tons of wood shavings and wood cutoffs that I need to do something with. So um, we toast using the same oak and we char using the shavings. Yeah. That's, that's realistically, if you're going, if you're using a more authentic traditional method, that's what they would have used anyway. They didn't have propane in the 17th, 18th century. They century. did not. No. Yes. And the Guinness uh, cooperage was not, you know, they didn't have propane. No, oh. you're exactly right. Yeah. I mean, they were. Yeah, I mean, you know, not that they were doing the best practices. I mean, there were also the beer guys were lining the barrels with, you know, pitch, and, uh, you know, doing all kinds of things, uh, which is something I've been trying to uh, find out more about. It's very interesting uh, what they would do to the insides of the barrels. But um, yeah, right. So no, that kept me away from the chemical. Yeah, but it was more about like, you know, atomizing lacquer and being in a spray booth and all those chemicals. So yeah, you know, and again, I tried not to reinvent anything. And, you know, I'm using mid-20th century machinery, but I did not try to, you know, make any new techniques. For some of the uh, recouping, I am using some propane just because they're older barrels and I can't do it the same way. Um, The recouping, what did you call it? I never heard that before. What is it? SLR? The um, uh, STR. STR. I like that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I guess that's what I'm doing. I'm doing STR barrels. So, um. The trick with doing STR is that the chime in the crows is already there. And I cannot destroy that with fire. Uh, when uh, almost every cooperage chars and you know you char and then you cut your crows 
and you're that's why when you see a shot of the barrel it's really clean up there and then underneath it's black uh because mm. it charred at first so that makes the recouping a little bit trickier because that is a the chime in the crows there is really the achilles heel of the barrel and there's not much meat there so if i start to destroy that or carbonize it uh, i'm not going to get the head to sit that's true I'm, I'm looking at i have a bunch of staves uh yeah out. i try to get a stave from every distillery i go to Oh, cool. Um, not everyone sells them, unfortunately, but some will some will go in the back and find you one if you ask. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, you're right. The the around the the crows and the chime, it's always cleaner, of course, outside where uh, you know the the slight rim that would be over the head and exposed mm -hmm. is not charred. Right, and if that what and they did that and charred it, that would just crumble. You know, there's a very you have a very small lip there, so. Right, not really crumble away. So uh, that just makes it a little trickier to do the same process with the STR. Yeah, and I think so. That idea of STR, I, I don't know if he, I don't know if he created it, but he certainly popularized it. It was um, Scotch uh, distiller and just brainiac uh, Jim Swan, Doctor Jim Swan, uh, who has since passed, but he introduced this as a way to kind of reinvigorate and make used casks more interesting in a way. So it would still qualify as a used cask by Scottish, Japanese, Indian regulations. Um, in his case, also, you know, Israeli, Taiwanese, I mean, he was all over the world. Yeah. But, you know, by shaving away the quote unquote used char level, um, retoasting to recaramelize whatever might've been left afterwards and then recharring, it's still a used cask, but it functions in many ways as a new cask yeah and that's and what we've can... been doing and one of the reasons to scrape that away is to get back to some of the wood so when you're toasting you're down to some of the sugars there um right. a lot of the sugar has been extracted but if you can shave down to the wood um when you toast you can get some more interaction with the sugars in the wood right yeah yeah this was something uh you mentioned earlier about the the terroir and um, you'd also mentioned in a previous interview that i i listened to just to prepare, which was that terroir was something in your words, you, you knew existed, but mm -hmm. uh, wasn't sure exactly what, uh, what it meant in the context of what you were doing. This was in 2019 or so, right, 2018, right. 2019. Um, yeah. And now that you've had a couple more years using uh, not only New York Oak, but when you occasionally have to go out of state, um, what, what do you think about terroir now? Would you still call it terroir or is it something larger? I would call it, you know, so the word terroir, you know, means that there is a, a specific flavor to, let's say, a specific region. But we still haven't talked about what that flavor is. Is it salty? Is it sweet? Is it? We're just using this term terroir. And on one hand, I'm providing a local terroir to their product and their flavor profile but what is that does it taste like socks <laughs> does it taste like uh, chili does it taste like coconut or you're getting hints of vanilla and um so one of the things i guess the feedback that i'm getting from my people is that the local new york wood or the wood i'm using it gives some vanilla tones and it's a little bit of like a coconut um so I guess if you wanted to say, what's the terroir of New York-based oak, you could kind of needle it into that. 
you know. Mm-hmm. But um, I think the term gets bandied around a lot, but there's no definition of it, you know. Sure. You can say that there's a local flavor to New Orleans, and well, what is that flavor? Well, it's the it's the flavor of New Orleans, but you know. So I know, but what is the flavor? So it's sort of the same with the terroir. I'm I'm giving you the local flavor of New York oak, but okay, but what is that? I'm to, so, but we're finding out that I, I think the overall is that there's more vanilla, and it, it's not a, a spicy uh, flavor or a, like a chili flavor. But um, that's just for my feedback from my distillers, you know. And the other thing is, you know, some of my competitors say that they can clone a barrel. But, you know, to be realistic, if you see a stave mill or a place in Kentucky making 2,400 barrels a day, um, they're getting trees from everywhere. And some of those trees might have been on a very mineral-rich ridge, and some might have been in a valley, and they've all sucked up different minerals. So, you know, you can't really clone a barrel if you have 25 different, you know, trees in one barrel and everything. So, I mean, you can do the same process over and over again, but um, everything's good. Unless you're constantly buying oak from the same region or the same location, um, that's really going to taste different. Uh, you know, that, that tree is absorbing the local minerals and water and whatever else is around it. And, you know, it lodges itself there and there. So, you know, everyone can be very different depending on where it is. Uh, did it come from the Northern Appalachians here in New York, or like you said, the Ozarks? Or uh, so you know, there, there's going to be different flavors there. Whether one is better or not, you know, I know the guys in the Midwest say that their oak tastes better because it grows in an even cycle. But you know, how much of that is true? I really don't know. It's, it's I decided that if I stayed traditional and not use the propane and not try to change anything up, that my barrels were going to taste just as good as they've tasted uh, if anybody else was making them. Yeah, I mean, I, I know some you know, friends of mine, uh, let alone people in the industry, in the whiskey industry, who would say they can taste the difference between, you know, ISC has these massive cooperages. Yes. In, in Lebanon, uh, in um, Lebanon, Missouri, I should say, not Lebanon, yeah. the country, Lebanon, Missouri, um, but also one in Kentucky and and I think one in Alabama, if I remember correctly. Uh, but th- the point being, they have multiple massive cooperages. So when you see something is from ISC, you have to ask, okay, which ISC? And there are some people who can say, yeah, we can taste the difference between a barrel made in Missouri versus one made from the Alabama cooperage. And um uh, personally i i don't know so much about that i i find a difference certainly in wood type i get a lot of difference like if you're uh, using uh, american you know corcus alba versus uh corcus rober or gariana sure. but, but in terms of i don't know I, i'm kind of torn because there's also this theory if you're sure. if you're french where terroir is everything in wine uh you look right. at the the French forests and each forest has its own profile. Plus then there are different copses within those forests that have their own profile. Yeah. Uh, and you start tasting some of the wood from there and like, wow, this actually does. But then I get, you know, I don't know if it's suggestion or if it's actually there, but it, it's right. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm not, uh, I, I, I'm also a musician. I mean, there is a lot of people that have perfect pitch or, you know, um, can really break down a song really good. 
And so I think there are people who can taste whiskeys and break down the flavors. You know, their senses are hyper uh, active uh, the same way the person who has perfect pitch can tell that the doorknob is the doorbell is a C sharp. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are people who can tell those differences, uh, you know, who are tuned in and who study it. But um yeah, I, I haven't met anybody. I would love to see a, a comprehensive, and I'm sure maybe ACAA has done it, but uh, you know, a comprehensive study of what New York barrels taste like. But there's not many people making New York barrels, you know. Although, you know, there's a lot coming out of Pennsylvania that goes to Napa for the wine, um, PA barrels. So yeah, but I, I've never really heard any studies, nor can I identify, you know, an ISC barrel from mine. I'd, I'd be, I'd be curious if somebody could identify my uh, whiskey, like what they make at Stout Ridge, and uh, um, as opposed to, uh, there's a company up here, Taconic, that uses ISC barrels. Nothing wrong with that. That's what they use. So, but um, I'm wondering, you know, what both of us are bringing to the party. Sure. So it's very interesting, you know, and it's very, uh, I find, I'm sorry, very intriguing. No, I, I love talking about it. Uh, and I find myself coming back to that question of terroir versus sense of place versus any number of things, but it does come up quite often and I like yeah. exploring it. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, with food, if, uh, let's say like a carrot or a truffle that's grown in France and the specific dirt, you're really right there. It's direct. You can taste it, you know? But the barrel, the wood is aged for three years outside. It's gotten rained on, you know, and then it's now it's aging alcohol. It's really gone through a lot. By the time it gets into your mouth, um, a lot has gone on, as opposed to maybe like food or, uh, you know, livestock. Right. I mean, you're you're once you're drinking a whiskey, you're talking about, let's say it was just minimum, twenty four months air dried wood, and then age six years. I mean, you're talking about a barrel and wood that was cut six, uh, eight years before. So does yeah. the taste of the terroir of then of now, how has it changed? It, that's, it's a good point. It's difficult to trace that through and to the, I think when you compare it with wine, where you can age wine for a couple of months, maybe a year you can go longer, but the point being, you don't have to age it as long as whiskey. Right. So you can, yeah. I'm so sorry. My dog was out back barking. Oh, no worries. Were we there? Sorry, I was trying to find a place. Yeah, no Can worries. You no worries. Getting edit this, you're all right. Yeah, totally fine. He was two minutes from coming over to this door and start barking. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So the terroir. Yeah. Um, I, you know, my main client uses my barrels because I use New York PA wood. <laughs> so he can, part of his narrative is that, and that sets him apart from others or using mass produced, you know, Ozark wood, not that there's anything wrong with that. And, you know, and, uh, but so, but that's, you know, that helps him with his story. I've, you know, all these distilleries have their legends and lore and you know, narrative and uh, so um, I, I add that to to his story, you know. And we were talking about doing different things. Talking about Stalridge, I, I built him a year ago an absinthe still. Uh, he's distilling absinthe in a wooden still that I made him. I'm very lucky that I have Steve at Stout Ridge and other distilleries who use me to, you know, do weird things. Somebody said, you want to make a birch tank? So I made a birch tank and we've made some cherry ones. And uh, I'm not afraid to do stuff out of the lines as opposed to a larger barrel factory that has, you know, automated assembly line and is not going to try to, you know, make a cherry cask. It's not worth their time. It's it it would mess with their processes too much to to do it. Right. And I'm stupid enough to you know. But I like the challenge and I want to be, you know, and just before, like with doing custom fabrication, people would come all the time with something new and something different. And your shop had to pivot and we're gonna do this library with this stain or this color. You know, you couldn't be like, oh, wait, what? So um I, my background in custom fabrication and I invite that. I, I enjoy doing the different projects for people and, uh, and trying different stuff. Awesome. Well, for me, I mean, I have personally loved this conversation. I, I like learning more about the product. Of course, I'm coming in fat up from the whiskey perspective, sure. uh, but even beyond that, it it's enlightening, I think to hear and also to have this conversation like I said, um, a couple of years into this podcast, so I can ask some, um, you know, we get the basics of it and the traditional way, methods that you're using, which are different from these other cooperages, but there's also more that, you know, we can discuss in terms of, um, you know, give yourself enough credit. You got into the science pretty well on that with the tyloses and the different things like uh, that, but. Oh no, yeah, uh, no, I do get it. Yeah. Yeah. I, the science that I know is more based around the, the tree, uh, the wood structure, not necessarily the the product that comes out of the barrel. Yeah, sure. That's right. And uh, no, it's great. I, I love talking about it and I really enjoy, you know, the history of it. And it's a shame. I mean, it's all going to kind of go away soon and just be automated, but that's happening with a lot of trades, you know, upholstery and uh, and woodworking. So it's just the way it's going. Well, for at least for now, we've got Cooper just like you, Coopers like you to yeah. uh-huh. give us some new things, some interesting things. And uh, yeah, I hope uh, I'll make my way up there. Maybe come on site one day, see what you're doing. Oh, get up here. Yeah, we're an hour and a half away. Yeah, you're right yeah, there. We, we love going up the Hudson Valley, so. Yeah, just Absolutely. moved into a new space. Yeah, well, I'd love to have you up. Um, there's a, uh, there's a brig, new brewery that Jan Wenner built up here, and uh, a distiller from the city is getting ready to move up, and uh, there's a lot going on up here, so we're very excited. 
Awesome. Well, come up, why don't we do a show on location? We'll get a bunch of people together. We'll, uh, just did that with, uh, yeah, just did that with with Black Button up in Rochester. So, uh, right, there's a guys, lot of fun. Yeah, they, they built quite a new uh, operation up there, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, I got to to tour it, to look through, take pictures. Um, some of the areas where uh, it's the last pictures that anyone's going to be able to take in there because you're in areas uh, where there's going to be super high alcohol content to the point where you can't have anything with a static charge entering the room. Yeah. Right. Um, So setting fires around there. No, definitely not. That's going to be on the other side of the parking lot. for sure. Yeah. 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 No, Jason's very impressive and what they built. It's very nice. That's awesome. Uh, So, yeah. So for, I know I have more research to do because I want to learn more and I'll ask you those questions when I come up on site, we get to yeah. talk more and walk through. Well, I'd love to come back on. I, yeah. I love talking about all this stuff. hundred percent. And uh, even though I won't be able to, to attend the event, uh, I'll definitely be talking about it. I want people to go uh, support you, support Kings oh, County. Uh, I do this lecture probably about 10 times a year. So, um, and it is on YouTube also, but uh yeah, no, I'll make sure to let you know when I'm doing it again. Definitely. Yeah. So with that, um, hang on with me for a second after I stop recording uh, to just close a few things out. But in the meantime, hope you all have enjoyed this episode as much as I have. Again, we've got John Cox. He's here from Quercus Cooperage up in High Falls, New York, up the Hudson Valley. And I have a lot of follow-up to do to learn more, taste more, um, got to talk to stout ridge because i haven't talked to them yet oh, and you got to talk to steve man he's the mad yeah. scientist absolutely yeah, you got to talk to and, steve and yeah there'll be more to come we'll definitely do an on-site at some point uh and with that everyone thanks for listening there will be links to social media uh to the website to events all in the show notes so you can click right from the show notes to those events uh, and to make sure you're following john on Instagram, Facebook, everywhere he is. And with that, it's been another episode of the Whiskering Podcast, and I'll see you all next week. Hey, folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeymywedderring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume under the influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the barrel share club. Each month barrel share club members get to try products sent to me for review bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. You can follow on Facebook at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or join the Facebook group, the WhiskeyRingers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers, thank for the support, and see you next time.